Hi, Jasmine Lopez here. If you like what you're hearing, you can donate to us by going to radioproject.org and click on the big donate button. And don't forget to rate us on iTunes, which helps other listeners find us. Thanks, and here's the show. This week on Making Contact... The family started abusing me physically, verbally, and I was in that situation for three years. People might think, why I don't just run away? If I run away, where am I going to go? Today, very rarely you find somebody in modern slavery who's actually in chains. But nevertheless, today it's hidden in plain sight. Slavery in many factories today in developing countries, there is a huge engagement of slavery where they can control many people. Slavery, forced labor, and human trafficking are making a comeback. Women Rising Radio features women activists battling this horrific problem across the world. Ima Matul was trafficked from Indonesia to Los Angeles, escaping to become an anti-trafficking activist with CAST LA. Joanna Ewart James heads Walk Free, a global anti-slavery network based in London. Human rights activist Elena Urlaiva monitors forced labor in the cotton fields of Uzbekistan. And Supriya Awatsthi works with Free the Slaves on a community-based model for sustainable freedom in India. I'm Sandina Robbins, your host this week on Making Contact. This program was produced by Women Rising Radio. Globalization has allowed businesses to drive down overhead by finding the cheapest labor worldwide, moving from countries with strong labor laws to countries with weaker or no protections. This race to the bottom uses everything from wage exploitation to outright forced labor, human trafficking, and enslavement. Indonesia supplies the global labor market with people seeking employment, most of them vulnerable, poor, and outcast. One of them was Ima Matul, a bright young woman of 16, hoping to start over somewhere. I was born and raised in Indonesia in a small city in East Java called Malang. My parents, both my mother and my father, are farmers. In Indonesia, especially from small town, small village, education is not important. According to my mother, you know, like, especially for women, education is not important because we're not going to eat a book. We're going to eat. <laughs> we need to earn money. And in, in Indonesia, it's, um, forced marriage it still exists. Girls don't have a freedom to marry who they want or who they love. So I was forced into an arranged marriage. When I was 16, I had to stop going to school and marry this man that I didn't even know. And um, he was 12 years older than me. I ran away from home when I had a chance. After that, my parents realized what they had done to me and um, helped me escape. But the, the shame is still there because in small town, everyone was everyone. I can't hide. No matter where I go, people will always see me, talk about me. So I feel ashamed. So I decided to go to employment agencies to work overseas. Because many young women in Indonesia, 
go work overseas such as you know Hong Kong, Saudi Arabia, Singapore. So they offer me if I want to come to the U.S. And of course I say yes, because if I go to the U.S., I'll be working with Indonesian family. I don't have to learn the language. I know the culture, the language, and all that kind of stuff. So the promise was for, for us to stay in the U.S. at least two years, and we would get paid $150 a month. In the beginning, everything went kind of pretty well. But after a while, the family, especially the wife, started abusing me physically, verbally, and started controlling, like, I cannot, I mean, from the beginning, like, I never go out by myself, I can't talk to anyone, and things are getting worse and worse every day. I was in that situation for three years. People might think that, why I don't just run away? If I run away, where am I going to go? I don't have any money because I did not get paid. I finally could not take it anymore. And uh, I decided to write a letter to the nanny next door, to the neighbor next door. One short sentence like, please help me, I cannot take it anymore, something like that. Ima Matul was fortunate. The neighbors rescued her and took her to Cast LA, the coalition to abolish slavery and trafficking in Los Angeles. Cast provided Ima with long-term recovery, legal, and social services. So I reported my case to the law enforcement and, you know, working with Cast to get my trafficker prosecuted. We met at the airport. She brought my passport with her and a one-way ticket to go back home to Indonesia. She didn't give me my money or my salary that I worked for three years. And I was wearing a wire <laughs> and everything. So it's like being in the movie and company by, you know, undercover agent, FBI agent all around the airport at LAX. So they follow her home, and and then the next day they let her know that, you know, she's under investigation. Cass has helped me so much with everything that I need to get back on my feet. They they provide me everything, encouraging me to get better education, get a better life, sending me to school, providing me with a tutor until I get my high school diploma. has developed the survival leadership program and um, I joined this program from the beginning it was in late 2004 and since then I have decided to become an advocate especially on the issue of human trafficking I want everyone to know that slavery still exists and that there is help out there for victims that going through that type of situation, the same thing as I was. Because when I was in that situation, I did not have hope. Since 2005, I started speaking up, sharing my stories in conferences, in community events. So in 2012, CAS hired me to lead this program. And the leadership program has grown from, when it was started, from four 
survivors and now it's grows over 200 survivors. In 2011, we created the National Survivor Network. Now this network has grown. We have over 150 members and we have members in 32 different states and representing over 20 countries. In December 2015, President Obama appointed 11 survivors to be the first United States Advisory Council on the issue of human trafficking, and I'm one of them. It's been kind of unbelievable, but also empowering too, where I look at myself, not just myself, but all the survivor council that are being appointed finally, or our voice are being heard. Trafficking victims often end up in the sweatshops, hotels, restaurants, massage parlors, and homes in the United States, Europe, and the Middle East. Ima Matul says there is a thin line between slavery and labor exploitation. Eleven workers, men and women, from the Philippines, once they arrive here in the U.S., they end up working in a restaurant getting paid $4 an hour instead of the $9.50 that they were promised. And they have to be done by 5 o'clock, by the 8 hours that they're supposed to be. If they did not finish by the 8 hours that they assigned to them, they were forced to clock out but continue working and not get paid. It's very tricky between labor exploitation and labor trafficking. Based in the United Kingdom, Walk Free is an anti-slavery organization using creative tactics to point out the close ties between state-sponsored forced labor, corrupt businesses that hire trafficked people, and multinational capital coming from agencies like the World Bank. Joanna Ewart James heads Walk Free in the UK, which uses an extensive social networking platform to involve hundreds of thousands in supporting human rights monitors who expose slavery and trafficking globally. Joanna is a veteran of anti-slavery and anti-trafficking struggles. She previously worked at one of the oldest anti-slavery organizations in the world. Anti-Slavery International was created in the 1700s, over 175 years ago, to abolish the transatlantic slave trade in the Americas. The issue of slavery is something that resonates so strongly with many of us who have a real sense of justice and the need for fair treatment of all people. And I think for me, what's particularly motivated me to want to work on this issue is the connection that we all have through the products and services we buy to people in really far parts of the world. So I produced a website, productsofslavery.org, which describes how those connections are made. It illustrates through either looking by product or country the situation of forced labour or child labour. So everything from gold in Congo to cotton from Uzbekistan or coal even from Brazil 
the range of products is actually quite surprising when you delve into it. And the Products of Slavery website really acts as an awareness tool to make us think about how we can all have a role to play and how we're connected and have a responsibility to end slavery. So, for example, if you click on cotton, you'll find that even today, um, there are 14 countries around the world where cotton is produced with the high incidence of forced labour. And it gives you an idea of the scale of modern slavery. One of our partners is a coalition of organisations who are all fighting for an end to modern slavery in the cotton industry, focusing specifically on Uzbekistan, where there are particularly large number of people in, in, in modern slavery during the cotton harvest, usually around September to December each year. Working with the cotton campaign, this last International Human Rights Day, December 10th, 2015, we held a rally outside the World Bank headquarters in Washington, D.C. We wanted to really highlight the fact that the World Bank is providing substantial financial grants to agricultural and educational projects in Uzbekistan to the tune of half a billion dollars. One of the conditions for receiving these loans is that the government of Uzbekistan has promised to abide by its own labour laws, including laws, of course, that ban the use of forced and child labour in the areas where these projects are operating that are supported by the World Bank. And what we know from independent human rights monitors on the ground in Uzbekistan is that where the World Bank is funding education projects in Uzbekistan, school administrators are ordering teachers to pick cotton. And even at times children, although now less so the younger children, clearly this violates the uh, conditions that the World Bank have put in place for the loans and the uh, financing that they have given for the projects in Uzbekistan. So in order to highlight the reality of what's happening in Uzbekistan, we projected some images onto the World Bank headquarters in Washington, D.C., and also some videos showing how slavery in Uzbekistan's cotton industry, um, what it looks like. So today is Human Rights Day. 2015, and what we're doing is we're highlighting forced labor in Uzbekistan here at the World Bank headquarters in Washington, D.C., with a projection of various images of slavery in Uzbekistan. So we've been leafleting here tonight, and as people have been looking at the projection, we give them a leaflet. We tell them if you want to support the issue of trying to get World Bank to stop loans to a regime that's forcing its citizens to work in the cotton fields, go online and look for the petition on Uzbekistan. So laborrights.org slash Uzbekistan, you'll find a petition you can sign on. It's not the kind of practices that the U.S. condones, that the World Bank should be condoning. And to go ahead and give a loan to the government, which is run by elites who are taking money out of the cotton industry, is completely contradictory to the principles of the World Bank. The pictures were very striking. The general public and also World Bank employees who are leaving the building were 
quite taken with the pictures. It was an opportunity for us to also talk to them and show how the Uzbek government's forced labour system impacts the lives of everyday Uzbek citizens who are forced to work exhausting and long hours in cotton fields. And we're calling for the World Bank to suspend their loans until the Uzbek government has demonstrated real progress and ending the use of forced labour in the cotton production system. We've got over 100,000 signatures of people who are calling for the World Bank to take action. Cotton is a huge industry worldwide and a big revenue source for Uzbekistan. Yet the profits do not trickle down, even to the Hakim, the farmers who actually grow the cotton, let alone to the unpaid cotton pickers. To fight this injustice, Walk Free and the Cotton Campaign rely on independent human rights monitors who live there. We understand and know what's going on in Uzbekistan because there are some very brave individuals in the country who are monitoring the situation. Now, doing that is not without risk. And in fact, that's proven. For example, Elena Uleva is one of the monitors who's been treated particularly badly because of her role in monitoring the situation in Uzbekistan during the cotton harvest. Elena Uleva has been repeatedly arrested. She's been harassed and physically assaulted throughout 2015, if we just look at that year, for her work monitoring the situation in Uzbekistan. So just in September, she was arrested by the police and they undertook a brutal body cavity search as they were looking for a USB drive which might have contained information of uh, forced labour. Some of the practices that have been put on independent monitors and other human rights activists in Uzbekistan are particularly shocking. And I think over the years I found particularly distressing is the use of psychiatric treatment on, on human rights defenders. And unfortunately, Elena has also been victim to that. Women Rising Radio worked with journalist Umida Niyazova to reach Elena Urlaeva in Tashkent, Uzbekistan, for an exclusive interview. Elena spoke of the difficulties monitoring human rights and of facing violent government authorities in her country. I've been engaged in human rights work since 1998, but the work focusing specifically on labor rights violations and state-sponsored forced labor, where children and adults who were forced to work in cotton fields, began in 2006. Since 2007, we began conducting visits to cotton fields to gather information to prove that the government was forcibly removing children from schools to work in the fields, disrupting their educational process, and knowing that the fields are treated with pesticides and thus not safe. Children aged 7 to 18 were forced to work long days under hot sun. I was a city person at the time and didn't understand fully the issue of forced labor in cotton industry. But when I saw small children, hidden by cotton plants, unprotected and exploited in the interest of profit, then I decided to focus my work on this issue. Parents and teachers could not protect them, and they relied on us, human rights activists, to bring attention to this problem. Despite the threats and challenges, we persisted. 
And in 2012, we achieved what we consider victory because the government of Uzbekistan officially announced that forced child labor in cotton fields will be stopped. Working as a human rights defender in the context of Uzbekistan is very risky. All fields where forced labor is used are heavily guarded by police, military units, and village administrations. It's becoming more and more difficult to enter the fields for monitoring, including extremely humiliating police searches that involve forcing me to undress and have a doctor search my genital area for a flash drive. I was also subjected to several x-rays because I was accused of swallowing flash drives that contained data on forced labor. Elena Oliva will be given an award for her work by the International Labor Rights Forum. More than symbolic, these awards bring increased visibility and protection to those like Elena doing the dangerous work of anti-slavery activists. You're listening to Making Contact. This week's program was produced by Women Rising Radio. Visit us at womenrisingradio.com and at radioproject.org. Supriya Awatsthi began her life's work as an anti-slavery and anti-trafficking activist in India when she was moved to action by the desperate poverty of children. I started noticing kids on the street, and I think that's where it came from, that I wanted to work on child rights. And from a small town in northern India, I came to Delhi, the capital of India, and started working as a volunteer because I never had any substantial experience of working in an NGO. And the issue of child rights and child labor was was really complex. I went to do my master's in London and I met Dr. Cayman Bales, who was the founder of Free the Slaves. And he motivated me to work for Free the Slaves. And that was the whole idea of setting up Free the Slaves, that how theory could be put into action, how we can bring about a sustainable freedom to people. And that's why I joined Free the Slaves. Slavery never actually ended. It was outlawed because of the work of the early abolition movement, and it is now illegal everywhere. But slavery has not yet been eradicated. One aspect of slavery's so-called comeback is that we are now beginning to see it, actually. So you see slavery in many factories today in developing countries. And the population in many places has grown faster than the economy, causing a huge wave of immigration from rural areas to cities and from poor countries to wealthier ones, creating a situation where traffickers can pose legitimate labor recruiters. We are working in Nepal, and one of our issues in Nepal is foreign employment. The people from Nepal are migrating to Gulf states for construction, for domestic work, and eventually they're winding up in slavery when they arrive because they've been promised and lured into the situation which really actually doesn't exist. There is a huge 
engagement of slavery where they can maximize the most violence they can control many people we have heard stories like in order to save life a woman who threw herself from fourth story broke her leg but she didn't stop there she tried to run away with broken leg she was beaten she was abused sexually she was not given any food and for a small mistake she was branded with hot iron and was subjected to abuse every day and her family who actually took an advance to pay to the trafficker they were in debt slavery in home country and that woman was enslaved at the destination in middle east there was a time when at least three dead bodies would come to the international airport in kathmandu from middle east per day yes Women and girls are disproportionately victimized by slavery. 55% of slaves today are women, girls according to the UN International Labor Organization. When we organize people to come out of slavery, it is the women who take the lead. And uh, actually some of them have prevented trafficking. They raised an alarm. Uh, sorry, I would like to share here that there were three sisters one of them got trafficked and a team in the field was able to rescue one of them and before she could get to her village she heard that her sisters were actually also lured by the same traffickers so the survivor went to her village and she raised an alarm and her sisters were prevented and then she didn't stop there she went behind the trafficker and got him arrested so that's what i see and all the successful community organizing that what i like doing the most is are led by women who are former slaves the bricklaying sector is very large in india and is not unionized it is dominated by indian gangs who keep hundreds of people working for them in bond slavery The workers are not allowed to leave to find other work. They are watched 24/7 and subjected to all kinds of threats and abuse. Supriya Watsthi worked with Free the Slaves to rescue hundreds from economic bondage in Bricklaying. We went there and rescued them along with the law enforcement agencies. And all of them were liberated. They came back to their home community. and we helped them organize and to understand what slavery looks like how to identify a trafficker and then collectively they wanted to do something to change their lives because they almost felt that they were able to sustain the liberation and so a few of the young men who've been into slavery for several years they wanted to set up their own bricker and i was i said wow this is like a big dream and uh, one of my passion is to help them realize their dream not that i did anything for them it was them who did on their own it was a very challenging job 
And more than challenging, it was really daring that they were challenging the status quo. So I was definitely concerned, but seeing their determination and conviction, we tried to help them. And slowly, they were joined by many more men and women who actually escaped slavery, I mean, who were liberated. And today, they are able to supply to a proper construction company, and they are collectively making profit. That's it for this Women's Desk edition of Making Contact. This program was produced by Women Rising Radio. Special thanks to Mirim Ilyas and the Urgent Action Fund for Women, Umida Niyazova and Terry Fitzpatrick of Free the Slaves. Music courtesy of Aravakash, the Drupad Sisters, and Sunda Gamelan. Our audio engineer is Vanessa Lowe with additional audio by Monica Lopez. Our producer is Lynn Feinerman, and I'm your host, Sandina Robbins. Thanks for listening. <laughs>